Well, hello to uh, Waterford and Lake Mary. Wish I was with y'all in person, but just know that while I'm here at Herndon, I'm thinking of you. Uh, also, to the men and women at 33rd, uh, so good to be with you. I'm so thankful that you're part of our church. Uh, to those of you who are actually in the room with me, um, I'm just, I, I, this week, it's been a hard week, uh, but, and, and, it, and I kept having to push back my sermon prep. Uh, and so I've been nervous all week about, about preaching, uh, but God has been so faithful. And, and really in the last two days, um, I feel like he's made a text come alive to me uh, that, I, uh, that I was surprised about. Uh, because today we're looking at a, at a pretty well-known, lesser-known parable of Jesus, at least compared to the other parables we've looked at over the last several weeks, this is the least lesser-known parable of Jesus. Uh, I think I said that right. Yes, what I mean is it's a pretty well-known parable, all right? I don't know that you can actually categorize it as a lesser-known parable because it's the one about the workers in the vineyard. Remember, it's the, it's the one where, where the people who show up and start work at the very beginning of the day get paid the exact same as the people who show up at the very end of the day and only work an hour. Um, I hope I didn't just ruin it for you, but um, we're going to read it. Let's just start off by just by just reading the parable. It's found in Matthew 20. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it's printed on the back of your bulletin. Uh, you can follow along there. I'm going to read Matthew 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again around noon and about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when, they came, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is God's word. Okay, so I did ruin it for you if you'd never heard the story before. Um, but it's not like I ruined the end of Mission Impossible, um, uh, mostly because my movie pass didn't work, and so I didn't get to see it. Um, no, I did see it, but I, I had to pay the $18. Um, but this story of the workers in the vineyard has been around for a thousand years. And so if you, if you didn't know it before, um, don't at me. Okay, so, so what did you think about the story? 
What, what do you think the story, having just heard it, what's the point of the story? Maybe that the same grace is available to us whether we come early in life or whether we come late in life. Or, or maybe everyone is made equal because of grace. That's how I've always heard it taught. That's how I've always read it. And both those statements are true statements. It is all about grace. But as I reflected on the story and as I looked at the context around the story and to whom Jesus told the story to, I began to think Jesus was being way more practical than we often read it. I think when you hear the story in context, you see Jesus is actually giving a fairly practical economic message. And if we miss it, we miss something very important about the kingdom of God. But to get there, you have to go with me on a little context exploration, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna go back a little bit. We're gonna go back to, to what is happening around the telling of this story. So right before Jesus tells the story, he has, a, he has an interaction with a rich young ruler. Now his disciples are all around him. They're, they're watching this interaction take place. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a, it's a good question. It's, it's a question worth asking. And another way to ask it, the way that you and I probably ask this question today, is more, am I good enough? And if I'm not, what must I do to be good enough? Haven't you asked Jesus that question before? I didn't need to ask that question for a long time uh, because I thought I knew the answer. Yes, Yes, I am. That was me in high school. I could have given you uh, an entire lecture on goodness. I could have written books on it, which, have which would have included chapters like how to influence people with your good works, uh, how, to, how to do good works that gets the most bang for your buck, which good works to, uh, to avoid because you're not going to get noticed for them anyway. Like I, I was really good at knowing what kind of goodness I needed to do in order to get the praise of men. But... This rich young ruler seems to be at least slightly more self-aware than I was in high school. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, am I good enough? And Jesus answers, no. He doesn't come right out and say it like that. He tells him to be good enough. He needs to keep all of the commandments. And then he begins to list the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not commit fraud, honor your father and mother. To which the young man responds, yeah, all of those I've kept since I was a young boy. So maybe he wasn't quite as self-aware um, as, 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 as he should be. Um, but what I found interesting about his answer to Jesus and then Jesus' response to him was Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you liar. He doesn't call him out. See, Jesus isn't interested in proving himself or winning arguments He's more interested in pursuing and exposing our hearts. And my guess is this guy was pretty good. I mean, he ends up walking away at the end of this interaction with Jesus. And when he does, the disciples say, if, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? So that at least implies that among the disciples, this guy had a good reputation. And also the fact that he was young and rich and a ruler indicates to me that he was probably a pretty hard worker. That when his friends were goofing off and partying and playing Fortnite, he was like focused. He was studying. He was doing what he needed to do to get ahead. And I believe he was probably pretty good to the people who were under him. 
Because if he wasn't good to them, then of course the disciples would have looked at him and said, well, of course this guy can't get into the kingdom of God. He can't inherit eternal life because he's a jerk. So he's probably a pretty good dude. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' main concern. Jesus tells him, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. What's Jesus doing here? Well, although he's giving this guy a very specific thing to do, go sell everything and give to the poor, he's really pursuing and exposing this guy's heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus can. And he is exposing here a kind of goodness that a lot of us who are part of the church are susceptible to. Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theologian, says that we are all feverishly searching for meaning in life, searching for a way to escape the guilt that we feel, and that we are looking for the things that can only be found in Christ, but we make the gratuitous assumption that when we are seeking the blessings of God, that we are seeking God. He said that is the dilemma of fallen man. That is our dilemma. We want the blessings of God but we don't want him. So there's a kind of goodness that is completely selfish, self-seeking, self-absorbed, and therefore no good at all. Do you want the blessings of God or do you want God? Uh, I took an addictions class in seminary and I remember uh, there was this one entire session uh, where, where we were taught about how addiction affects marriage. And we were told that many marriages... Uh, break up when a uh, when 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 one of the part when the, the partner who's addicted gets sober, and our teacher asked us, "Do you know why that is?" Like and we had to, we kind of had to talk about why we would think that would be, uh, and then she shared what usually happens. So let's take the example of uh, uh, there's a husband and his wife is an alcoholic. Now the husband needed his wife to be a mess so he could rescue her. So he could feel good about himself. So he could feel worthwhile. So he could feel in control. So he could demand things of her and other people. Now, what he looked like was a long-suffering, compassionate husband. But in reality, he wasn't seeking her. He wasn't loving her. He was loving himself. He wasn't serving her. He was serving himself. He wasn't seeking her. He was seeking things from her. See, underneath all that selflessness... Underneath all that service, he was being radically selfish. On the outside, it looks as if he was doing all the right things, but he was doing it for himself. Jesus offers to this rich young man to get rid of everything and follow him. And in doing so, he's allowing this man to see his heart, to see if his obedience and service has been for God or for himself. And when the young man sees this, he walks away overwhelmingly grieved. Sometimes I think following Jesus is an easy decision. I think like the apostle Peter who who said to Jesus, okay, if we don't follow you, like where would we go? You have the words of life. But then this story reminds me how hard that actually really is. And I think of all the times God has stopped blessing me and the ways that I want him to bless me and the ways that I think he should bless me. 
and how instead of moving closer to him, oftentimes, more times than I'd like to admit, it causes me to walk away overwhelmingly grieved. In my 37 years here on this earth and and 30 years of, of being a Christian, the one thing that Jesus seems to constantly teach me, constantly expose in my heart, he's done it again this week, is that my desire is to want the blessings of God more than God. Do you want the blessings of God more than God? Jesus looks at this young man and he says, I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions, all of it gone. All you've got is me. How's that sound? Jesus wasn't just asking this rich young ruler to give away his money. He was asking so much more. He was asking him to give away his security, to to give away everything that he had built his identity and worth on. I believe this man was a good man. I believe he tried his best to keep all the commandments. And I believe he thought that the riches and the position he had achieved in life affirmed to him that God was pleased. And Jesus is looking at him and saying to him, You've missed it, but you can still follow me. Jesus is telling this rich young ruler who spent his entire life trying so hard to earn it that he didn't have to bring anything with him. He didn't have to prove himself. He just had to show up. My mentor Steve Brown says, if if anyone told you uh, going to Jesus requires anything but rags, they lied to you. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, all of our good deeds, all of our righteousness are like filthy rags to him. Right before this interaction, Jesus had just been with children and he had said, truly, I tell you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you shall not enter it. What can a child bring? Nothing but themselves. And if they've been playing in the mud, filthy rags. Jesus looks at this man and he loves this man. In fact, in the gospel of Mark, this story is recounted and it's the only time in the whole gospel of Mark that that Mark says Jesus specifically loves someone. It was this guy. This guy got the specific love of Jesus. Why? Why did Jesus love this guy? Because of all that this man had accomplished? Because of all his doing? Because he was a good person? No, no. Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler and I think he's seeing himself. He's thinking, I'm a young man too. Jesus is probably 31 at the time. I'm a rich young ruler, far richer than you can imagine. I have incomprehensible wealth, joy, power, and glory, which I've had from all eternity. And I left it. I left it all. I gave it all away for you. Are you good enough? No but you're worth it. Though I am rich, I became poor for you. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the disciples see this interaction and they say, oh man, 
who then can be saved? And Jesus, as he's watching this young man walk away grieved, as he's looking at his disciples in their incomprehension, all the while knowing his own impending death was not long off, he says, you're right. It really is an impossible invitation. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's Matthew 19, 26. And y'all, this isn't really uh, fit into the sermon, but I, but I just have to share it with you. Um, and I can't give you too many details because it involves a woman who's part of Samaritan Village. Uh, but y'all, this week, the dead literally came back to life. And it is an absolute miracle. And the doctors have no explanation other than it being a miracle. And I know that there are so many people that are on the prayer list that have been praying for this. And I just, I just cannot believe it. It is impossible with man, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about if this young man had left everything and followed Jesus. What would he have seen? He would have seen the only one good enough, the impossible perfection of God becoming his sin on the cross. See, this young man came to Jesus wanting an addition to his daily to-do list. A lot of us come and we say, God, what do you need me to do so that you can be pleased with me? Like, add to my list. But what Jesus offered him was a substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. The cross answers the question, are you good enough? No, but Jesus says, you're worth it to me. Now, am I worth it to you? Leave everything, give to the poor, and follow me. I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't already done done. So this is the tension in the air when Jesus tells the story. This is what has just taken place. But then it's a question from one of Jesus's closest disciples, Peter, that prompts him to actually tell the story. This made me laugh when I saw it because Peter says, after all this, after watching this interaction happening, Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Oh, sweet, obnoxious Peter, right? And then Jesus, wanting to pursue and expose Peter's heart, says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. You see, Peter is who Jesus is gonna build his church on. And Peter thought pretty highly of himself. He was very similar to this rich young ruler. And, and when Jesus talked about how, how they would all turn their backs on him, Peter was the one who boldly proclaimed, yeah, everyone else is gonna turn their back on you, not me. I got your back. But we know that he did. In fact, we know that he, he denied Jesus three times in one evening. See, Jesus told this parable to disrupt Peter. The reason Jesus told stories was not to make us feel better, was not to give us a bunch of to-dos. It was to disrupt us, to expose something about ourselves so that we could better understand what God had in mind when he thought us up. 
He told stories to show us what the kingdom of God that he had come to, to usher in here on earth, what that would look like. He told this story to expose Peter to his own heart. You see, he knew Peter needed to start seeing things differently if he was in fact gonna lead the church. He had to start seeing things like Jesus sees things. How else could he mobilize the hands and feet of Jesus if he didn't see with Jesus' eyes? If Peter could not see with Jesus' eyes, how in the world could he mobilize the hands and feet of Jesus? It's interesting to me that Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell everything and not give it to him. He says, give it to the poor, then follow me. Jesus doesn't say, give it to me. He says, give it to them. Following me is giving to them. You want to follow Jesus, give to them. Following Jesus is generosity to them. What keeps us from being generous? A heart that compares. A heart that, that says, I've earned this. They didn't. They don't deserve it. I get to decide who is deserving or not. I am better than them. The reason we aren't generous is because we think we are better and we have, we've gotten what we deserve and they've gotten what they deserve. They don't deserve anything else. And knowing that Peter's heart was so quick to compare and judge, Jesus tells him a story that seems completely unfair. At least from the perspective of those who got picked early in the day for work. But now imagine how you would feel if you were the last one picked. Every, uh, every year we have an annual staff uh, kickball uh, game and, uh, and it's like being in elementary school all over again for me in the playground and the whole time I'm just praying like, I don't want to be picked last. Like, please don't let me be picked last. And don't worry, I never am. Gary Abbott always is. Um, I know he seems athletic, but the biceps are just for show. Um, so um, imagine, though, if you were the last one picked. When you hear the story, instead of being the guy at the beginning who's been working all day, what if you're the guy at the very end? In verse 6, it says, about 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And then their response is, because no one has hired us. No one wanted us. It wasn't that these workers didn't want to work. They did. They had families to feed. It wasn't a lack of desire. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us the circumstances why no one chose them, why they hadn't gotten work. But you and I, we can know why people in our community find themselves in that same spot. We've said this a bunch. Orlando is one of, the, one of the cities with the largest population of working poor, people who work very hard, who want to work, but can't find work to make a living wage. Listen, if we dismiss this parable's practical economic implications, we miss the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus is painting. A picture Jesus wanted Peter to see as the church was being formed. Now, this isn't a political thing. It's a kingdom of God thing. It is what it looks like for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. The late uh, Brazilian Archbishop Helder Camara once said, when I fed the poor, they called me a saint. But when I asked why the poor are hungry, they called me a communist. 
Listen, we are no longer a theocracy. We are not a nation led by God, and I'm not naive to think that our government will bring about the kingdom of God, but my hope is the church will. That's what we've been tasked with, to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We as the church need to see that a 100% employment rate with all receiving a living wage is what the kingdom of God looks like. So how are we going to get there? I don't care what the methods are. I don't care if it's through politics or it's how we run our business or it's the the money we choose to give nonprofits. Uh, We are tasked with seeking to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really want that? Is that our desire? Because some don't. And I think Jesus makes it very clear in verse 12 why. The response is, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. This is Peter's heart on display. If you look at Peter's life, you know that Jesus has profoundly identified Peter's brokenness. And my guess is it's a brokenness that many of us have. See, Jesus told this story to disrupt Peter, to change the way Peter saw things, to change the way Peter saw people. Because if Peter didn't change, Jesus couldn't build his church with Peter. Do we need to change for Jesus to build his church with us? It's interesting that in the story, Jesus makes it clear that the owner is going to to give those who hired at the beginning of the who were hired at the beginning of the day a day's wage, which would equate to a family having their needs met for about a week, enough food for a week. And then when he goes out again later in the day, he doesn't tell them what he's going to give them. He just says, I will give you what is right. I will give you at the end of the day what is right. And then at the end of the day, He gives everyone, no matter how much they worked, a wage that would provide for them for a week. Jesus is teaching that what is right in the kingdom of God might not be fair in our kingdom. What is right, justice in God's kingdom, as we see throughout the Old Testament law and as we look at examples in the New Testament church, God's justice is not fair, it's what is needed. Psalm 146, 7 says, He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18, The Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. God gives to us based on what we need, not based on merit, and he instructs us to do the same, and he calls that justice. Jesus said he came so that we would have life and life to the full. Jesus gave to us based on what we need to have life and life to the full, not based on our merit. See, Peter needed to have eyes to see people like Jesus sees people. To see needs, not merit. And eventually Peter would get this. But it took a long time. You know what one of the, what the actual very last interaction between Jesus and Peter before Jesus ascended up to heaven? Um, it's crazy. This, uh, so, so Peter and Jesus have this moment at the fire after Jesus is resurrected and Jesus confronts Peter about denying him three times and, and there's this beautiful scene of repentance and reconciliation. And then Jesus tells Peter that Peter's gonna end up dying for his sake. And then Peter looks over at John, 
one of the other disciples and says, what about him? And the last thing that Jesus would say to Peter, Jesus' last words to the man on whom he would build his church, the church that you and I are a part of 2,000 years later, this is the last thing Jesus says to him. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? It's like the landowner saying to the workers who are grumbling in verse 15, don't I have the right to do with my money as I wish? Or are you envious because I am generous? I wondered if Jesus' last words to Peter were the light bulb moment for him. I wondered if that was the point where, where Peter finally got what Jesus was teaching him in this story. Because Peter would go on to lead the early church in fighting for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we see examples of that in the early church. In Acts 4, verses 34 and 35, listen to how they describe the church. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Not as he deserved, not based on merit, based on need. Jesus says, don't give it to me. Give it to them. The apostle Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 8, you must give to the poor. And then he says, why? And it's exactly what Jesus demonstrated in this scene with the rich young ruler. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus needed Peter to get this. Jesus needed Peter to stop comparing himself to others, to stop looking at himself and saying, well, I've given everything to follow you. He needed to let all of that go, and he just needed to start seeing like Jesus sees, like Jesus sees people. Jesus sees need, not merit. So first, our hearts need to be exposed are we like the rich young ruler or are we like Peter? And we feel like our good works or our sacrifice have placed us in a superior position that we deserve and are owed more than others. Are we the type of person who becomes infuriated by being made equal with those who didn't work as hard as us? Or as the story shows us, didn't have the opportunity to work as hard as us? Are we looking at the guy hired at the end of the day and grateful that his family will eat for a week or do we say that's not fair? He didn't deserve that. He didn't earn that. Well, neither did we. It really is all about grace. God's not fair. He's generous. He tells us, don't give it to me. Give it to them. That's how you follow me. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Let's pray. Father God, I, uh, I thank you that you are a God of generosity. That as we worship you, 
we see that even in the way you design creation, it is all a gift that everything we receive, every good thing has come from you. That you have chosen to give to us uh, despite if we've earned it or not. And Father, that is most beautifully and profoundly seen in your giving your son for us. We have gained the entire world. We have gained eternity because you gave. So Father, as people of the kingdom who understand the beauty of what we have been given, make us people who give, who give generously. Make us people who who fight for the kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, that can only happen. That can only happen if you have exposed our hearts to us. If we have seen clearly how far you had to come to rescue us, to save us, to give to us. Father, we, we ask for the ability to see others as you see them. That we would be able to look at people and see what you had in mind when you thought them up. And do whatever we can to come alongside and meet needs so that people have life and life to the full, whether or not we think they deserve it. Because you designed us and built us and made us. We are all worth it. We pray this in the one who declared our worth when he came to earth and he died in our place, Jesus Christ. It's in him we pray these things. Amen.